Well, good morning, Christ Church. It's great to be here with you. Uh, Michael and I have been able to have lunch a couple of times now and just really enjoyed getting to know Michael and got to say hey to J uh, James one time at Presbytery and really enjoyed my conversation with him as well. But just wanted to say thank you to Michael and the elders for extending the invitation for me to be here and open up God's word with you. Um, I am, my family and I, we are so enjoying this new season of ministry that we're in. So I'm RUF pastor at UAB. This is year two for me. And coming in with Amy as campus staff was so helpful. She has been at UAB longer than I have. She knew our students, the campus better. And so she has been a tremendous asset. But I've been married to Anna for about 12 and a half, half years now. We've got four kiddos, two girls, two boys. Hattie's six, Ella Kate's four, little Caleb's two, and we've got little Jack, who's seven months. He just started crawling, and he's all over the place now, so got our hands full. Um, but it's also been really great to do an RUF, like get to know some of your very own students here. So Noah Davies and Mary Joan Martin are in the group now, and it's been so much fun getting to know them. Mary Joan has been asking just some really great questions about scripture and the Christian life. So it's been so great processing things with her. And then we've been playing basketball on Wednesdays at two o'clock at the rec center on campus. Noah comes out to play and man, that kid hustles. He goes nuts playing basketball. Jeff Bagley just told me that his nickname in the youth group was Turbo. So that makes sense. But it's been great getting to know them. And then I want to tell you about one other student before we kind of get ready for our passage this morning. But he's a non-Christian. He will say that he's agnostic. And he's been coming around, though, a decent amount because he's made a good little friendship with a Christian student who's involved. And at the end of last semester was when he told me that he was agnostic. And he said, you know, a religion that says they have the truth and other religions are misguided somehow just sounds arrogant to me. And so we got together at the beginning of this semester. And I just told him, like, I really appreciate you being honest about where you're at and things you're wrestling with and just asked if he would be up for reading through a gospel together and continuing to consider Jesus and just work through some of those questions and um, he's up for it so I'm super excited got him a bible I'm gonna meet with him this week and just really look forward to doing that with him so be praying for that that God would open his eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and all that he's done for sinners like us to rescue us and to bring us back into fellowship with God but there are times in life where we have to, or we are able to think through goals that we want to work toward. You know, we just stepped into a new year. Maybe some of you thought through some New Year's resolutions, whether that's fitness goals or career goals. Or like me, I like making reading goals for the year. Love digging into some good books. But when it comes to sustaining motivation for the goals that we set, the things that we're working toward, it's hard, isn't it, to keep motivation alive? Sometimes it's strong, but other times it's not. So we have to learn how to kindle and sustain motivation somehow. Whenever I watch Braveheart or The Patriot, good Mel Gibson movie, or one of the Thor movies and see Chris Hemsworth, his big bulging biceps, I think, you know, I need to get to the gym. And so I'll turn to Anna and say, you don't mind putting all four kids to bed tonight, do you? I'm just kidding. That would be the end of me can't do that. But I'm also doing premarital counseling with a couple right now, and this whole issue of motivation has been coming up there as well. One of them comes from a very healthy, wonderful Christian family, 
and the other comes from a family with a much more deeply broken story. And we're talking together about how bad examples can motivate us because we don't want to be like the bad examples that we see. And good examples can also motivate us because they show us a beautiful picture of what we want to seek after. But we all struggle with this problem of sustaining motivation and resolve when it comes to the commitments we're making or the things we want to do, areas of weakness that we want to grow in. And when it comes to the Christian life, I think we all have this desire to be good at evangelism, to grow in it, but it's hard. It's scary and intimidating. What if I don't know the right thing to say or how to answer some tough question that gets posed to me? What if people think I'm being pushy? And these things really are difficult to know how to do well. I feel it with students all the time. How do I be purposeful with them without crossing the line into being pushy or a little too aggressive? How do I be intentional without being intimidating? And there's the cultural pressure that we all feel as well. Uh, the cultural pressure to just keep that stuff to yourself. Like, it's fine that you believe that, but don't try to talk to me about it. And yet we know, because of what the Bible says, that if people don't trust in Jesus, that they'll be lost forever and eternally condemned under God's justice, which is what we all deserve but don't have to experience because Jesus has made a way of escape for us. But there's one thing that has profoundly infused my own heart with motivation to have relationships with non-Christians and to grow in evangelism. And believe it or not, it's the Trinity. So you might be thinking, how in the world can the Trinity give us motivation in evangelism? Well, I hope that that's what I can give you a glimpse of in our time together this morning. But I think, I believe thinking more deeply about our three-in-one God has something incredibly profound to offer us as we think about our mission of making disciples. So our text this morning is John 17, verses 13 through 24. This is Jesus' high priestly prayer where we get a little glimpse into his communion with his Father and him praying for his disciples and, by extension, us. So John 17, verses 13 through 24, here's what the Lord's Word says. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. 
Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you so much for giving us your word. Thank you for this little portion of your word and pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things here in this passage. Help us think more deeply about who you are, that you are our three in one God. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us and empower us and motivate us in our mission of making disciples and seeing the lost come to know you. Give us grace and courage as we live life in the world. I pray that you would fuel and empower our hearts with courage and grace to do that this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can see there in your worship folder, I've got three points I want to unpack together this morning. It's the marvel of the Trinity, the model of the Trinity, and the motivation or the mission of the Trinity. So first, the marvel of the Trinity. I really think when we begin thinking about the doctrine of the Trinity, first of all, we have to get to a place where we truly marvel at it. The doctrine of the Trinity, that our God is a three-in-one God, truly one God, yet who exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. This can be a doctrine that confuses us or even embarrasses us. Some have charged Christians with being polytheists in disguise because of this doctrine. Some charge us with believing in absolute absurdity because of this biblical teaching. How can God be three and one at the same time? And what I hope our time together this morning does is give you a small taste of just how glorious and good the doctrine of the Trinity is. We can face these challenges to our faith, I think, without getting into super intense logical arguments, although there's a place for those. But I think we can also face these objections head on with the beauty and the grandeur of our three-in-one God. So that's what I hope to give you at least a little glimpse of this morning. And if I happen to succeed and stir up a deeper longing to dig into this magnificent aspect of God's nature, then I can't recommend highly enough Michael Reeves' little book. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. It's like the best 130-ish pages on the Trinity that I've ever read. It's a really great book. So it's Delighting in the Trinity by Michael Reeves. And in that book, he poses this thought experiment. He asks us to compare and to imagine the difference between a single-person deity, such as Allah of Islam or the God of the so-called Christian cults that somehow deny the full divinity of Jesus. So we're comparing a single-person deity with our three-in-one God. Got single person deity in this hand, three in one God in this hand, as if we could hold him in our hands. But we're asking the question, why? Why would this God create the universe? What would his motivation be for making everything? Well, if you imagine our good old single person deity over here, I think there's a few possibilities that come to mind that would, would seem quite reasonable given the question. Maybe he's bored. And he wants something to keep himself occupied, a little project to tinker around with. So he creates everything essentially to entertain himself. Or maybe he's lonely 
and he wants some company. So he creates everything so he's got friends and some companionship to enjoy. Or perhaps he thinks that it's about time he creates a world that he can rule over. And we're made as his servants to do his bidding and to bring him what he wants. Now all of these, boredom, loneliness, wanting servants, I think seem like reasonable options given the question of why a single person deity would decide to create everything. These make sense because a single person deity, you would think, would have to, to some degree, be inherently self-focused. He couldn't be eternally and inherently loving because before he created, there was no one there to love. True love has to have an object, the one who is loved, the beloved. But you might be thinking about all the Bible verses that say that God is all concerned about his own glory. And you're right, the Bible does speak that way consistently. But I think in the most beautiful and wonderful way, the Trinity makes a massive difference in how we understand that. A single person deity is inherently selfish, self-concerned, but with our three-in-one God, the one revealed to us in Scripture, this concern for his own glory is actually selfless because it's the Father pointing to the Son and the Spirit. The Son pointing to the Father and how good he is. They're drawing attention to one another. And in that way, it's selfless. They are self-giving in their love and enjoyment of each other. And we get a glimpse in John 17, our passage this morning, into the abundant, joyful relationship between the Father and the Son. In this passage, Jesus talks about the joy and the unity and the glory that he shares with his Father. And notice especially verse 24, where Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now there's a couple remarkable things to mention about this verse. First, Jesus says that he was loved by the Father before the foundation of the world. Before the Lord ever rolled up his sleeves to begin creating the universe, he was eternally enjoying his Son. In Proverbs 8, verse 30, wisdom is personified there. But listen to how this personified wisdom figure describes its experience in God's presence. And remember that Jesus is himself wisdom incarnate. It says, I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence. So you see the Father and the Son, along with the Spirit, they were enjoying the deepest delight and infinite joy in each other. And it is this unimaginable abundance of happiness that spills over into the act of creating all things. So the big reason behind creation is not divine boredom or need or emptiness. It's divine fullness. The Father and Son and Spirit are so fully and gloriously happy that this gladness just couldn't be contained. So it bursts out into creation so that it could be shared with us so that we could be brought in to enjoy that delightful circle of fellowship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Which is why Jesus says that he wants us, his chosen and saved people, to be with him where he is, so that we can behold his magnificent glory 
and be totally satisfied in seeing it. In verse 13, he says that he has come into the world and spoken his life-giving message of grace so that we may have his joy fulfilled in us. This is such a beautifully different picture than what we see when we consider a single-person deity creating all things. Rather than there being a big void in God, being the reason behind creation, we see that it is truly a vibrant, joyous love that longs to be shared with others that led to the creation of the world. So the Trinity truly is something to marvel at. First and foremost, this is the response that this wonderful doctrine calls for from us, to marvel and be amazed at the reason behind creation is so magnificently good and glorious. But not only is the Trinity something to marvel at, which should be our primary response, the Trinity, I think, also serves as a model for us in our community together and how we love the world around us. So point number two, the model of the Trinity. So in verse 18, you can see there, Jesus says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. The Father sent his Son into the world to come after us and to do everything necessary to rescue us from our sins and bring us back to God. And Jesus is saying here that he is sending his disciples out into the world just as he was sent into the world. So in a sense, Jesus' life and mission are to serve as a model for us. Ephesians 5 verse 1 says, Therefore be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So as we marvel at the Trinity and come to see how our three-in-one God also models community and mission for us, I think we ought to be eager to look for ways that we can imitate him and grow up into the fullness of who Jesus is making us. But as we take a closer look at the Trinitarian nature of the gospel and of our salvation, here are a few things I think we can learn. So first, stepping outside of the Trinity to provide salvation for us was uncomfortable and painful for Jesus. God the Son left the delightfulness of heavenly bliss in order to come down into our ruined and broken world. He stepped into suffering so that we could step into supreme satisfaction in Christ. But this was an unimaginably costly move on his part. He came down from heaven to live the good life that we fail to live, and he died the death that we deserve to die for our sins, all so that we might be brought back into the fellowship of the Trinity. So this is something for us to imitate and to grow up into. Stepping outside of ourselves and our comfort zones is never easy. It's uncomfortable. We can feel really awkward doing it. But it is a beautiful way that we can imitate Jesus and play a small part in creating a community that it's profoundly and thoroughly shaped by God's grace. Hebrews 12 tells us that Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. And we too should be willing to endure the uncomfortable and the awkward for the joy of welcoming others into our midst. The second thing I think we can learn is that stepping outside of the Trinity to save us was also inconvenient for Jesus. He did it willingly and joyfully because he loves us so much, but it was far from convenient. You know, I continue to learn so much in ministry, but one thing that sticks out to me is just 
how inconvenient so many important moments of ministry can be. Significant ministry moments don't usually occur within our preferred time slots. We can't always schedule them. Sometimes opportunities for meaningful ministry and loving one another well, whether that's within the home, with our spouse or children, within the church, in our relationships together, or in our friendships with non-Christians. Sometimes those opportunities for meaningful ministry come at the most inconvenient times. When we're working on something that has a deadline coming up and we're stressed about it. Or when we're just exhausted and, to be honest, pretty irritable. But even though it required unspeakable difficulty, Jesus willingly embraced the inconvenience involved in securing our salvation. All because we are precious in his eyes and he loves us. So when we are inconvenienced by others, whether it's our children or spouses, siblings, friends, co-workers, whoever it may be, I think we have an opportunity to remember all that Christ has done for us. And in remembering that, to love them with joy as we seek to follow in the footsteps of our precious Savior and King. And lastly, distance. So the distance Jesus was willing to go to save us is absolutely astounding. Thinking about this magnificent gospel reality can empower and help us be more willing to go a great distance in order to love others well. If you just think about adoption, I have a good friend in Knoxville who he and his wife adopted a little girl from India several years ago, and it was then that I really got a good glimpse into everything that's involved in the adoption process. I realized that, which is, makes sense why scripture uses the imagery of adoption, but it is such a good and a beautiful demonstration of the gospel. So much goes into it. Paperwork, home study, interviews, more paperwork, research. And for them, traveling across the world to stay for several weeks while they waiting for, waited for everything to be finalized. I learned from their experience walking through the adoption process that there's tremendous cost to it in the form of Finances, time, energy, emotions. But they fell in love with their little daughter. And they would go through anything in order to get her and bring her home. And human adoption, as costly and taxing as the process is, is a tiny little picture of our adoption in Christ. Jesus was willing to go an, unima an unimaginable distance to make us his. And the distance he was willing to go reveals the depth of love that he has for us. And as we become more and more astonished by what Jesus has done for us and how far he was willing to go, I think we will become more and more willing to embrace the cost of evangelism and mission. We too were once lost, dead in our sins, doing our own thing. But then grace broke into our hearts and changed all that. And we want the same change that we've experienced in Christ to occur in the lives of our lost friends and family members. And he wants to use us in their lives to bring that about. But once we get how far Jesus was willing to go to save us, I think it'll make us a little bit more willing to go to great lengths in order to love and serve and share the gospel with those in our circles of influence who so desperately need forgiveness and grace from Jesus. And may not even know it or be concerned about it. And our last point, the motivation or mission of the Trinity. So I think the vertical empowers us 
in the horizontal. As we marvel at how much the Lord has done to make us his, we can't help but be moved out in mission toward the lost. When we are truly blown away by the goodness of God's grace, we will want to be instruments of his grace in the lives of others. As we marvel at the Trinity, we find ourselves more and more motivated to share with others the glorious good news of how we can come back into God's presence because of what Jesus has done. In the circle of fellowship within the Trinity and our welcome back into that circle by grace is meant to shape the circle of our community within the church. Marveling at the Trinity will motivate us to model the Trinity, to kind of pull all of our points together. But it is so important to remember that it is in the marveling that we experience the motivation to model the Trinity. If we just try to model the Trinity without marveling at our three-in-one God, it's like trying to drive our car without any gas in it. Our hearts are made to run on awe and astonishment at God's goodness, marveling at how we've been welcomed into the Trinity by the grace offered to us in Jesus. Romans 15 verse 7 actually makes this dynamic really clear. Paul says, Therefore welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So just as Jesus welcomed us into the circle of fellowship between Father, Son, and Spirit, we too have an opportunity to invite the lost to come into that circle of fellowship where we have found the deepest longings of our hearts satisfied in Jesus. So I think our understanding of the Trinity can be a massive motivator in growing in evangelism and in community formation. Like I said towards the beginning, evangelism is hard for all of us. None of us feel adequately prepared to do it, but evangelism, I try to say this to kind of demystify evangelism with our students, evangelism really is just making friends and growing in friendship with non-Christians. I tell our students that relationships are like bridges. If you have a bridge, it's sturdy, it's well-built, you can send some heavy cargo across it. But if you have a bridge that's not well-built, it's not sturdy, it's weak and wobbly, try to send a heavy load across it, there's the risk of collapse. So we want to build good, sturdy relationships with non-Christians. We want them to know that we love them so that when we take advantage of opportunities we're given to talk about Jesus and share the gospel, hopefully it comes across as, hey, I know they care about me. And they truly believe this. But I think relational evangelism leads us to pray and look for opportunities to steer conversations toward Jesus and the gospel in the context of friendship. But we need a way to be motivated by grace and not by guilt. And I think that's where the Trinity comes in and offers us something really beautiful. It gives us a wonderfully compelling reason to reach out in love and compassion to non-Christians. Because in doing so, we are imitating what the Trinity has already done with us. Stepping outside that circle, Jesus, at great cost to himself, in order to pay the price to bring us back in. In verse 23 of our passage, Jesus says that the Father has loved the disciples even as he has loved Jesus. And those are words to stand in awe of. That's what the gospel is. Sinners like us being joined to Christ in such a way that the Father loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. That's what it means to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, the Father isn't disappointed in you or disgusted with you. 
He's not shaking his head in frustration at you all the time. Of course, he's aware of our ongoing sins, and they do grieve his heart. But his overwhelming posture toward us is one of joy and delight. We are precious to him. And all this is possible only because of what Jesus has done to make us his. And all we have to do to receive this, and all we call the world to do to receive this, is to turn from their sins, to trust in Jesus alone as the only way to be made right with God, and to begin treasuring him above all else. I love how Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, You stand before God as if you were Christ, because Christ stood before God as if he were you. This is the gospel that we're called to go out and share with the world. And we learn from Paul's example in Colossians 4, verses 4 through 6, that we should be eager to share the gospel both clearly and compellingly. The only way we're going to be able to do that is if we know the gospel deeply ourselves and are continually bathing our hearts in the warm waters of God's grace. I think that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 17 of our text. When he prays, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. God's word purifies our hearts of the impurities that remain. That takes the rest of our lives to completely do, but that's the process that we're in. But we must be people of the word if we are going to be sharers of the word. We must deeply absorb the gospel into our hearts and minds. We want to enjoy it so that we can extend it. Enjoying God's grace so that we can extend his grace to more and more people. Another way to say it is that astonishment leads to movement. Only as we are astonished by God's grace shown to us in Jesus will we begin moving toward those around us who so desperately need him. But this fight for astonishment and awe is a daily battle for every single one of us. Our hearts are so easily, they find other things attractive. And the astonishment that we feel at God's grace sometimes, it can fade away so quickly. Our hearts are dull. So it takes energy and intentionality to seek after fresh astonishment at God's grace on a daily basis. But I think meditating on the Trinity has the power to make us marvel and to bring that astonishment into our hearts. It can make us awful Christians. Not awful as in bad, but awful as in full of awe and astonishment at God's goodness. Marveling at the Trinity can reinvigorate us with motivation to fulfill the mission that the Lord has given to us. And so may God give us his marvelous grace, astonishment at it day after day, so that we continue growing in this. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. Thank you that you sent your son to come after us to get us, to do what had to be done to bring us back into your presence. Lord, our sin is a massive deal. It is so serious that Jesus had to go to the cross to pay the penalty for it so that we could be brought back into your presence. And so we thank you for your love displayed in the cross in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and pray that as we think about all that you have done to rescue us, that our hearts would be blown away and astonished. And we would be more and more eager to share this good news of grace with other people. 
and that we love the non-Christians that you have providentially put us in relationship with. So give us grace and courage and astonishment at all that you've done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.